This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome and good afternoon, good morning, good evening to all of the, the largest class, Africana classroom in the world. Good morning Whoa. in class with Dr. Gray Carr. It is episode 69 for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now inverted. That. Happy uh if you celebrated, happy cookout weekend. I hope you've all been inoculated, not inoculated. What do we say? Well, vaccinated. vaccinated, inoculated. Shut up. Yeah, you hope you ain't in nobody's barbecue threatening nobody's life because this Delta variant is real, particularly in the South where our fam is. I see Mississippi's numbers, Louisiana. Yo, come on, y'all. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Um, we need all hands on deck. So that means we need y'all to be healthy and, and here to do the work that needs to be done. All right. So um, last year this time we did a what to the slave is the 4th of July. So you're going to see some of that, a clip from that um, after our discussion. But this week um, can't go by without us talking about uh, Bill Cosby. And before I hit record, we always have a conversation, just a brief one. And yeah, I was yeah. like, nope, let's, let's just let me hit record. Yes. You know, there was a lot of conversation, and this is just brief, about Felicia Rashad, and I, I wanted to bring her up because she's at Howard, where you are, you know, um, yeah. and I, a lot of people were saying, oh, so, you know, because of her position as dean, she's going to, you know, she, she can't be trusted to to take care of the children because that's her job. And you were like, um, you said if somebody held a gun to people's head and asked them what a dean does, there'll be a lot of blown out brains. A lot of blown out, a lot of dead people. <laughs> a lot of dead people. <laughs> so, so Felicia Rashad is not responsible for um, the young people uh, if they have a, a situation. I mean, if, some, if, somebody, if somebody discloses to her, if somebody disclosed to me, if somebody disclosed to you, Professor Hunter at Hunter College, is if somebody disclosed, disclosed to a person working in the cafeteria or somebody driving the shuttle bus up the hill or somebody cutting the grass or somebody coming out of their classroom, then uh, as our friend, uh, Angie Porter, who did this work at the University of Minnesota uh, as a lawyer would tell you, uh, that's why they have, we have an office, offices of Title IX at universities. Uh, it is our responsibility and we go through extensive training. All of us have been yeah. in those trainings. Uh, it is our responsibility to report. Now, if somebody were to come to Dean Rashad and, and, and report, then yeah, it's her, it's her obligation. But we don't need to think about these things in terms of chain of command. There is an office of Title IX. And of course, that is a, well, yeah, in terms of process, that is a completely separate issue from the one I think that's animating a great deal of the public discourse. And when we apply our, our Africana Studies framework, to even this developing story, I think we can begin to think about this in a way that is much more systematic. Because right now, um, as old folks say, Jesus take the wheel. Right now, emotion has taken the wheel, and this car is spinning out of control. And you know, that's one of the reasons people I think maybe trust us a little bit to have an honest conversation because they know that we're not going to veer off one way or the other. We're going to try to play this thing the way it should be thought about, which is with a cool head, but yeah. Uh, so what, I mean, what do you think about that? There's a lot of that question of, we can't trust her being had in, in, I, in both I, the social structure and the governance structure. And I think there's a reason why we need to make a distinction between those two, but go ahead. So, I mean, uh, you know, I had an extensive conversation this week on my radio show at, on Sirius XM with Tanya Pinkins, Michaela, yeah. uh, Angela Davis, uh, yeah. Dr. Robin came in, Dr. Robin Smith later, we had, you know, we talked about, um, 
a lot of it, I, I just think it reveals the dysfunction in our community and the, the ways in which we have been conditioned to contort ourselves around issues of right and wrong. Yes. And, and it's foundational, right? So I think maybe on the continent, we were very clear about, you know, elders and right and wrong. If people violated, there was banishment and we see this in indigenous populations as well. There, there was a rule of engagement and also uh, a way in which you dealt with people who violated the sanctity of the community. In bondage, however, you know, we were thrown this, this slave Bible which was a distinct thing, told a set of things to do. And every day the master violated those things. And we had to accept that. And we had to accept it within our, our own you know, community. We had to accept it uh, with, you know, or else, right? So, it, so there are spaces, and I don't know if it's codified. I don't know if it's inculcated in our psyche and our spirit that we have space for the complex, you know, the, these things. This is wrong, however, so it allows us to sit at the Thanksgiving table with the molester in our family. It allows us to, you know, go to the cookout, which a lot of you will, with the person that has been and everybody is playing cards with them and they're laughing, although there's deep hurt, right? It allows us to be in households where people are being abused daily and we put on a good face outside and we never deal with that dysfunction and everybody knows, right? And I think Cosby is, is a microcosm of somebody who is incredibly important to our community, has done some amazing things, uh, has, uh, and many people, many people went to college because of the work that he did. Many people uh, looked at him and saw for the first time what a father is supposed to be, you know? And at the exact same time, he drugged women and had sex with them, which is rape. Now, legally, as a the person that went to law school, I'm sure Dr. Carr, you can tell us legally that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court made a good ruling because there was a deal on the table that was overturned or breached or, you know, what have you. He gave a deposition under the understanding that this testimony would never lead to any kind of charge. As we both know that 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 in, in the law, they would say he relied to his detriment. That's that's a that's a basic principle of contract law. And they would say, well, did he write it down? Did the DA write it down? Did the prosecutor to come? No, 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 no. There's an implied contract there. Um, and yeah, I read the uh, both uh, Justice uh, Wex's um, majority opinion, which was 79 pages. And then there was a concurring opinion, concurring in part, dissenting in part. And then there was a dissent. It's very interesting. But yeah, I mean, legally, uh, at least the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania um, decided that he had relied to his detriment, and so he was deposed with the understanding that he would not be charged. And then a subsequent uh, district attorney came in, in fact, campaigned on this and said that, uh, you know, I'm going to prosecute and I'm going to use that deposition. And in fact, uh, when, you know, when you read the court's opinion, it's pretty clear that, you know, the Commonwealth, when you look at not just the previous DA, but the, the one that prosecuted you know, it's almost like this was a strategy. It's almost like you 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 tricked me, and 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 I think that in some ways, see, you know, when 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 Dean Rashad tweeted, you know, that this is injustice has been corrected. If you're if you're reading those words as a lawyer, then you can very comfortably say yes. And and I think about you know um, Monique Presley, who had been on his defense team at one point years ago, 
uh, she made a comment uh, last Wednesday, well, the day that it came out, she said, you know, take Cosby out and put your son in there or put your father or brother in there. And I would add, put your wife, your sister, your mother, put a black person in there who you would say, no, I think this is exactly the kind of thing that criminal punishment uh, reformers and advocates and those of us who say this whole process needs to be destroyed and rebuilt would say in this case, the legal system worked on its principles. Now, when you take your the person you would want to defend out and put in Bill Cosby, now you have mixed something that is explosive. So when you read a tweet, if the interpretation is, okay, the system has affirmed the principle that the state cannot use this type of trick to coerce you to incriminate yourself or even potentially incriminate yourself because there are people out there tweeting that you know he confessed he's a rapist and everybody calm down everybody calm down because this is a debate a conversation that we will all have in one way or the other but that and two is a separate discussion than whether or not in the dock i mean Innocent until proven guilty, we know, has been over the life of this settler state uh, a farce when it comes to Black people. And in many ways, the Cosby case echoes the OJ case in the sense that this person is at once a living, breathing human being with the full range of contradictions. And I know you know many more of them than I do. I've never met Mr. Cosby. I uh, lived in Philadelphia for a number of years. So I encountered a lot of people who know him, grew up with him, went to school with him. You know, he came out of the Richard Allen Project. He went to Temple Central High School. I saw him with the Central High School t-shirt on the other day. And I'm thinking, I know them Central grads are wincing some of them, but I'm saying all of that being said, when you think about how we are talking about this, then the idea is he's all of those things, this human being with all these contradictions and all these things, you know, the, the quiet part being spoken out loud in many corners of our governance structure who are African people, each other. Different. However, when you look at that first question in our African states framework, the social structure question, who are Africans to other people, he becomes not just Bill Cosby, but an avatar. So it isn't or it is like like Orenthal James Simpson out of the projects in the Hill Park, San Francisco, him and A.C. Callens and all that guy, then University of Southern California, then the Buffalo Bills. Increasingly, he too becomes an avatar. So there's one conversation, broadly speaking, that uh, people are having on CNN and commercial white face and public media and translator media. That's the social structure. Now within the governance structure, there's a very different set of conversations being had. And we all know that the conversation that Black people are having with each other spans the full gamut. And, and I, what I suspect, finally, just in terms of our initial conversation about this, I think it's very important that we, and I'm glad that you said, you know, we need to talk about this. What I suspect is that in the governance structure, in the conversation Black folk are having with each other, realizing there is no anchoring Black way of knowing there's no corporate black we don't have a black we talk about it. we care about the cookout and who's invited to the cookout there ain't no board inviting people to the cookout there's a vague echo and sentiment of this conflagration of african cultures and all this kind of thing and then oppression bakes us into this thing called black people but we all know but there is something operating i think one of the many strains operating in, in the governance conversation we're having is class 
Mm. There's a class dimension in this. And I think that when uh, Felicia Rashad tweeted what she tweeted, I think black folk generally know that this criminal punishment system is set up to convict us. We're guilty until proven guilty. <laughs> in other words, it's going, you know, we're looking for an excuse, but that's not a conversation we're going to have. And if you are uh, on the top of the social class structure, if you're black in America, I'll use the example St. Clair Drake gave. He, he, he was interviewed many years ago, the sociologist St. Clair Drake. At this time, this boy went to Stanford. Brilliant brother. I mean, St. Clair Drake, one of the most important thinkers we have. He was at the time, it was at Roosevelt University in Chicago. And he was being interviewed about class in the black community. And the question was, is class based on how much money you make? And he said, let me give you an example. He said, when Horace Caton and I were working on Black Metropolis, the book they wrote on, wrote on Black Chicago back in the 1930s, he said, um, he said, you got two guys working in the meatpacking district in Chicago, gutting cows. They're, they're, they're bovine eviscerators or something like that. He was joking. They basically gut the cows. Then they get the same pay envelope. One of the guys takes his pay envelope, goes right to the bar, starts drinking, then stumbles his way home, tries to open the door. The door doesn't open. The wife opens the window, yells down at him. They start arguing in the street. Then she comes down he goes in they get in a fight he start hitting on her and then they sit down and finally eat dinner and they calm down this kind of thing he said the other guy goes straight home pulls on the door the door is not open he waits for his wife to come down come down the wife opens the door he goes inside the argument starts they start fighting he hits on her then they sit down and figure out how they're going to apportion the money what's going to the child's college fund what's going he said they make the exact same amount of money, but the social protocol, and they got the same kind of ridiculous problems and the violence and all, but one of them is behind closed door. Nobody in the street knows what's happening. Let's go to Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby came out of the Richard Allen Projects. When you're watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, you're watching a cartoon gloss of where he grew up. You understand, he was an athlete, went to Temple, uh, went to Central High School, as I said, after going to Germantown High School, all this went into the military, becomes the alternative to a guy like Dick, Dick Gregory, who makes a left turn. Dick Gregory was making as much or more money than Bill Cosby was, but as we know, Dick took it in another direction. We'll try to July 4th in a second. Uh, but the point is that when you see how Bill Cosby emerges in the social structure, he becomes a safe Negro, but he never stops being Bill Cosby. So he lightweight with his left hand funding projects. In fact, our freedom school kids are reading a book this summer. We had a opening training this week. Shout out to all my, I love my fellow freedom school students. We're reading a book called, We Are an African People. I've mentioned it before, Russell Rickford this, this summer on African-centered education in the 1960s and 70s. The book opens with a scene from Philadelphia, John Churchville, the elder who was still alive from a, from a little documentary called Black History, Lost, Stolen or Strayed. It's on YouTube, y'all can look it up. This is the companion book. If you've never seen it before, it's called uh, Black History Lost, Stolen, or Strayed. Otto Lindemeyer did the companion book. It's an interesting little book. But the reason I bring this up is because this was a documentary that CBS did. The book came out in 1970. Now, what's interesting is the uh, Black History Lost, Stolen, or Strayed, when you look at the film that accompanies this book, which is about Black pride, Black education, how Black people are changing, our attitudes are changing, the narrator of that documentary and a driving force in it is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, 
And of course, that's not out of character for Cosby in the late 60s, early 70s, because what does Hoodie do? We, 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 this is another day we talk about Cosby. There's a number of books been written about Cosby. Uh, you know, the, the whole uh, move he and Sidney Poitier, I mean, they're going to start, you know, making black film and they make those comedies and black folks still treasure them, you know, all those movies. And we won't get into Cosby. We all know Cosby. But the point is this. Cosby becomes an avatar in the social structure when these accusations start coming out triggered by, and I've been scratching my head because I, I, I was graduated from Temple in 98. And apparently Andrea Constan and, and what happened with him happened in the early 2000s. She was in the basketball program at, at Temple, you know, and I was very close to a number of the athletes, student athletes. They were my students. Uh, one of my best students, one of the best students I'll ever have, in fact, is now the chair of the history department at the University of Virginia, Claudrina Harold out of Jacksonville, Florida, brilliant sister. Um, she had graduated by then as well, but she they, they were within two or three years of that iteration. So I know that I know people who would know Andrea Constant. And, and Cosby was a constant presence on Temple's campus. So he's a well-known well -known entity. And I'm talking about the full range, if you know what I'm saying. Again, you know what I'm saying. You, I mean, Cosby is known for, 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 for doing Cosby things. Now I'm saying all that to say this, that person, in the governance structure becomes somebody with another function in the social structure. So now we got an avatar. You put a tweet out and you say, yes, vindication. Wait a minute. What happens in the governance structure is you see the class cleavages emerge. And so, and I'm, I'm not, I'm setting aside just for a second the science and technology of social media. That's, our, that's another category we want to talk about for a minute. Remember, we got these six categories in African states. When you say so, social science and technology, we ask ourselves, how have African people either developed science and technology or adapted science and technology for their needs? Social media is a form of technology. So when we see this social media going on and we see these mediated avatars going on and we see people say, I don't feel safe. And then you click the tweet and you look at their, uh, at their, tagline how they describe themselves and there's a quote like uh let's 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 not and say we did and then you go back to the tweet and the tweet says i don't feel safe coming to day i'm like okay it's either bot or somebody just or the same energy that would say you cannot judge anybody in our generation and i'm talking now about particularly about young people so to speak who are putting out music and i'm not gendering this for the moment so i don't care whether it's drake whether it's uh, Megan Thee Stallion and, and Nicki Minaj, whether it's Lil Wayne, I don't know, or, or Lil Nas X, not gendering it, but I'm saying you can't judge how we embrace our sexuality. And then in the next tweet, I don't feel safe in this space. What is being revealed in the science and technology is, here's another category, in the way of knowing, we are bereft of a standard of how do we deal with relationships? Because you and I had an extensive conversation about the kind of Africana ways of knowing that echo through a piece like WAP. Now, at the same time, there are people in our communities who would say, you can't talk about not being safe and you are here naked. And which my response would be, that's your opinion, that's your perspective, and every human being has a fundamental human right to be safe. <laughs> so in other words, there's a whole lot swirling around, but then when you put out a one sentence tweet, what gets revealed 
really, I think, and the only thing we can to reliably say happened is we got to your point, almost like a bolt of lightning. It illuminates everything around us for a split second. He's been exonerated. And what do you see? Hold on, we got to wait, wait, wait. Do we put, do we put out a tweet? Do we fire her? Do we come back? On? Hey, why are you worried? Because people are saying they don't feel safe. Who are the people? Well, these are social media. We got to wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then let me let me just add the last two categories and then we'll we can continue this conversation because I think first of all everybody should read the brief. I'm not the brief, the decision, Supreme Court decision. And we'll come back to that. The last two categories. So we're talking about social structure, who are black folk to other people. Cosby, like any other defendant, is an avatar. There's politics involved. We're thinking about you in the social structure. I'm sorry, the governance structure, who are African people to each other. That's where all the arguments, all the debates, all the conversations are being had. And then the minute somebody else sticks their head in, what, what we have, I think, what, what hasn't happened, because it's only been a few days since this, this decision, because we're not thinking systematically, the social structure and the governance structure spill over into each other. Right. And that's why we had to have these categories so we could at least turn the volume down and think, because this should not be about race. No woman, no man, but no woman in these instances should feel unsafe. But I'm watching black people out here saying, women, are, and I'm saying, those 35 women who were on the cover of New York Magazine, I counted maybe three or four black women. And I'm saying no woman should feel unsafe. And I'm saying some of, you know how race operates in this? Race operates in a way that you will say you will hold the principle that no one should feel unsafe, and some of them very same people might be at your lynching next week and talking about your brother or your sister. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm saying, but that's a conversation we should be able to have without accusing somebody of being a, a, a rape supporter. No, 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 no. Anyway, so the, the, the as I said, the ways of knowing category, there is no standard. Maybe there shouldn't be a standard. That's part of the garment too maybe there shouldn't be one standard and you know but we still don't have we haven't established a frame of reference for how we're speaking how we're talking and i think that's what's being grappled with now science technology social media is the mainline delivery system and so for the first time uh earlier in the week you know i don't really watch and you know you talked about that too being on a diet the white facing commercial public i don't watch cnn msnbc but i turn on just to see and there we are I'll watch your friend, oh yeah, Laura Coates, grappling with, I'm a lawyer, so I'm gonna tell you, but at the same time, I know if I go too far explaining this, why he, y'all might paint me with, so you gotta open any intelligent conversation about legal with, I'm not saying, no, I think you should be in jail, I think they should screw, I, hold on, because if you go too far in that direction, and I'm watching my friend and brother, Mark Lamont Hill on social media, man, look, all this, he's a rapist, he's a, look now, Here's, here's the thing y'all got to deal with. I assume Cosby got two or three nickels stashed away somewhere, although Gloria Alfred uh, said she- Alfred, Alfred, yeah. Alfred, yeah, you know, I, you know, it's like, you know how black folk used to say, uh, when they, instead of calling him uh, Red Fox, they would call him Fred Sanford. Well, Fred Sanford, yeah, you know, some people I must confess that I enjoy uh, mispronouncing their names. So Gloria Alfred, I'm sorry. I No question. I mean, you know, I'm going for the money. Okay. You're not my, you're not my champion. And see, I'm old enough and have studied enough to understand who you are. You too are an avatar and you're in the social structure. So I don't, I, that's why we had to create social structure and governance structure so we could at least tone this down and know who our friends are, who, are, who our friends aren't. Because everybody cheering until you put my sister in the dock. And then it's like, you, 
yeah, y'all was never allies. <laughs> so anyway, you see all that in the in the in the uh, ways of in the science of technology. Finally, movement and memory. How did or do black people remember this? This is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets tricky, because again, the fault line of prosecution. That's why I thought what Monique did the other day was very interesting. She said, "Take Cosby out and put your son in that seat." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, take Cosby out, put your daughter in that seat." The deal that was negotiated for some petty drug charge, we're not gonna probably. And then you look up, and in another, they take testimony from a civil side and put, "Wait, no, we had a deal." No, you're gone from now on. And unlike Bill Cosby, it's not high profile, and so it happens every day. These kind of betrayals, and it's not going to get appealed. And so you gonna So I'm saying all that to say, in terms of movement and memory, what what has been triggered in Black communities is how we remember criminal injustice. So that the the unwieldy attempt to call Bill Cosby Emmett Till, or the attempt to say, you know, he's being lit. No, hold on. No, no that's it. what you know. But what what are you trying to do? I'm trying to create movement and memory. I'm trying to make sense of this in a framework other than the one that I'm being bombarded with. And even though I'm thinking this is a lot more complex than this, and I don't think anybody, let's go back to ways of knowing for a minute. If you're drugging people, you should be held responsible. And just like at Marion Barry's funeral, when Louis Farrakhan got up and said, the press came to me and said, how can you support uh, a drug addict and a womanizer? And he said, well, you know, that's a good question. I don't know how I could support John F. Kennedy. And then everybody started to cheer. He said, we either gonna have one standard or we're gonna have a conversation because we don't think anybody who's abusive should be in jail. But the last I checked, I have lost track of the number of complimentary things, documentaries, references to in other documentaries, attempt to emulate him in fiction that have been made at Hugh Hefner. Some of that stuff happened at the Playboy Mansion. Hugh Hefner is in the ground and somehow his reputation survived intact. Now, for every Harvey Weinstein, every Bill Clinton, every Donald Trump, there's a Hugh Hefner. There is a Western way of knowing that so devalues women that that type of behavior was not only allowed, it was encouraged. Y'all better go watch them Jane Bond movies again. I mean, think about the, the whole, so I'm saying that. And, and that, that, that was brought up. And I think, you know, the, the value of us being here in this space at this time is to remember who we are. What? So, so my question always is, is this, you know, cause the people brought, well, white people get away, white men, blah, blah, blah. You just brought up Hugh Hefner and there are right. dozens of others. That oh, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that white men only should be, I'm saying anybody. That's our I principle. Agree. I agree. So, but at, at what point, and do we have the capacity? Cause as you're talking, I'm like, I feel no. like what I'm saying, I don't even think we have the capacity to have the kind of conversation we need to have to be free. Which to, is why to, we're having it. <sighs> It is so frustrating. No, no, it is completely frustrating. All right. But, but, but no, but, but it is complete. But, but again, Thelonious Monk, I think this is attributed to Monk anyway. Um, they asked Monk, Monk, you always playing these solos, man, and we don't know where you're going, but somehow they always end up where they need to go. He said, only wrong notice when you stop playing. So at a moment like this is, you know, even though it's frustrating, we got to keep at what we're doing. This is why I'm sure there are people watching this right now who have waited all week to see what we was gonna say. And what we can easily say is that we have to think about things 
systematically. Because if we don't tone the volume down, we'll never get to the question of how do it free us. You don't want to live in a system that you can't change. Earlier, last, uh, this past week, mm -hmm. we saw Nicole Hannah-Jones get tenure at the University of North Carolina. That is absolutely because the most powerful thing in human society is human beings. So in other words, Nicole Hannah-Jones became an avatar. So in that moment, there's a, there's, a, there's a governance structure conversation that black academics and all the people will have about Nicole Hannah-Jones. And then there is a moment for the social structure. How do we collectively face this social structure? Because we don't care who she is to us. In this moment, what we care about is how you have used her as an avatar for all these other things. So we formed up like Voltron. I signed a letter, trying to ask, you know, you say, oh man, I'll hell y'all signed a letter, no question. She, so she got she didn't get tenure because they had a change of heart. She had a she got tenure because she had a deal, or she thought she had a deal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They start edging up behind it. Politics got in play. And not only black people, white professors, there's a, there's a woman now who's joining Claudrina's department, University of Virginia, who left UNC, said, look, I'm glad it worked out, but I'm still leaving because I don't trust UNC, this kind of thing. But we have to be able to think about these things. And this is why I said I'm tying it to independence and so-called July 4th. When, when we are unable to have these conversations, then we are subject to other people's agendas. And that is one of the definitions of America it, in terms of people of African descent and Native Americans, particularly, and other non-whites, but particularly those two groups, you become subject as a group to other people's agendas. I watched a documentary last week, um, a week ago today, I guess, last Saturday, uh, called The One and Only Dick Gregory. It finally, I don't know, have you, have you had a chance? I don't know, you probably haven't streamed it or anything. I think they had it at Tribeca. You no, know, I actually, I have a copy of it. Uh, and I, Christian's going to be on the show next week, his son. Wonderful. Yeah. Tell my brother I said hello. That's my man, I, Christian definitely, definitely. So so I'm I'm going to be watching it this weekend. It's on my to-do list. Oh, good, good, good. You you will thoroughly enjoy it. The best thing about it, and, 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 and Christian says this, uh, they had a talk back, AFI Cinema down the street here in D.C. had a little talk back, and, and Christian made this point. He said, the strongest thing about this documentary is it's my father talking. So, you know, I, you know, I, I texted Yohanse and Yana, the two of the 10 Gregory children I'm closest to. And then Chris, you know, hey, man, y'all did a good job. I got you because y'all let y'all pop talk. <laughs> it was in that last book that he did. I helped him prep for it. You know, I, you know, we met him set for hours. And so you'll see the conversations that Dick Gregory, we all know how Dick Gregory was. Dick Gregory says something, it's just a quote, he's very, very quickly, is attributed to him. And he's, and you see him say this as one of the many, 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 many scenes. It is just so, it's a wonderful thing to see him again talking. And he said, you know, some people say to me, America, you don't like America, love it or leave it. You should just leave it if you don't love it. And I say, I won't love it because it's not a friendly country. And I won't leave it until I personally straighten it out. And once it's straightened out, I'm out this motherfucker. <laughs> so, I mean, and so you laugh and you think about it and say that to me gets as close to defining the black relationship with this criminal enterprise. You want me to leave? No, no, I ain't gonna love it. Shout out to our young sister, Gwen Berry. Gwen Berry said, this anthem don't apply to me. And you know what I love about that? Because when I saw her, 
we follow each other on Twitter, Come which on. is anonymous. Oh, let me tell you how dope she is. So Come on now, tell us about Gwen Bear, because somebody out there, some of y'all about to hear something you didn't know about. Tell us about her. No, well, she's, she's going to be on the show, so you're going to know even more. Stop, really? Because I was like, oh my God, you're my hero. So I no DM'd problem. her. She responded immediately. I'm like, please come on the show. She was like, absolutely. And so we've been going back and forth. She's going to be on next week. And I can't wait because, you know, Megan McCain and all these ridiculous uh, non-thinkers have the audacity to, to challenge this woman who did what uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos and so many others have, have used their platforms to, uh, Colin Kaepernick, use their platforms to let people know that I can't stand for something as long as this country is not living up to its ideals. That's right. And that's the most American thing. She's more well, American than- That's what they, well, I think that's what, that's what the social structure wants to hold up. That that's mm -hmm. the most American okay. thing. I'll sit corrected. But, but no, 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 you know, cause we both know. This is why I love how Dick Gregory, Baba Dick put it. Love it or leave it, I ain't gonna love it. No, I ain't gonna love it because <laughs> it's not a friendly country. And I'm not leaving until I personally straighten it out. So in other words, they say, see, that's the American way. Oh, no, no, let me give you one more sentence. And once it's straightened out, I'm out this moment. <laughs> in other words, see, what you don't understand is the thing that you claim is an American value is really a human value. This is why Malcolm said, I'm not talking about civil rights, I'm talking about human rights. Now, what America tries to do is act like it is the custodian of human rights. So last week was the 100th anniversary, for example. Let me, let me, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, just thank you. Thank you. No, yeah. you know, we, we say we regurgitate these things. We say these things, right? Yeah. Because again, you know, it's, it's patriotism. Huh? You know, you can't get more patriotic than a black person who's willing to fight, fight for somebody's rights, even though we yeah. don't have to hear. Yeah, that ain't true. It's a mantra that right. is in a, in a loop that, right. that we repeat and regurgitate. And so this pause that you talk about, you know, even how we think and talk about Cosby, how we think and talk about all of the things that we have to think and talk about. Yeah. We have to examine why we repeat these things and why that's, we say these it. things. And, and so thank you. No, thank no, no, no. Thank you. Because once once we pause, and that is that is the great work of narrative. It's the great work of our YouTube sessions, the in-class sessions. Once we pause, we have enough trust, faith, belief in each other to not only embrace, but to yearn for and anticipate whatever answers we come up with. It just requires, just stop for a minute and think, because that giving that voice, again, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's what makes uh, Gwen Berry in her 31 years of life on the planet, makes Gwen Berry so remarkable in this moment. Unlike other black athletes who when pressed, felt that they had to somehow translate to the social structure and link it to the question of patriotism as a kind of defensive man. She didn't do that. She said, the anthem don't speak for me. It never has. And when she did, of course, you know, I, yeah, I tagged her, tweeted, I said, you know, don't speak for me either, sis. And for those of you who want to understand, let me just say this. If, it speak, if you say it speaks for you, you either don't know the words, don't know who Francis Scott Key was, or don't care. Those are the only three options. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You might not care because you want to believe. Again, going back to Nicole Hannah-Jones, that opening essay for which she won the Pulitzer in the 1619 Project. She says, you know, I wanted to understand and I, why my father, you know, still put the flag up for a country that had abused him. And then, you know, it gets resolved into, well, this is about the promise of America. 
you know what, sis? I signed a letter. I was down for it. I'm saying, hey, man, UNC, give her a team. And I couldn't more vehemently disagree with that narrative in our governance structure. No, 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 no. It's no aspirational, nothing. Because aspiration didn't get UNC to back up off what they did. Human beings did. And, and our organizational logics overflow these country boundaries. So as I said, China just celebrated uh, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. I say celebrate, and it's crazy because Jin Xiaoping is, is, is standing in Tiananmen Square last week, last Thursday, talking about, yes, you know, this is what has allowed China to come back and we don't allow anybody to tell us what, you, you're literally standing in the square in 1989 when the world was watching, when the tanks rolled in and you kill, and you just, it's almost like the straight, the biggest troll. Everybody know what happened exactly where you're standing. So what you basically standing is, what, what you're saying is the equivalent of Rick James on Eddie Murphy couch, F your, F your international community. We do what we want to do. Now, how does America get exempt from that? Because the day before he made that speech, Donald Rumsfeld died. This is a war criminal. You know what I'm saying? But in America, because he took a shower and wore a suit and was an old white man and came up through Nixon and then George W. Bush and them, you can be a war criminal and be walking around. And you damn near got to be a confessed sexual predator like Donald Trump for them to come after you. And they still coming after you for your bank account, not for your confessed sector. Now, you want to talk about somebody being a sexual predator? This guy's on tape. Ain't nobody in jail. But the point is this. I'm making this point for a point. Gwen Berry in that moment said, I'm not going to turn to the social structure and explain anything. It doesn't speak for me. They set me up. They said the thing was gonna be played as we were walking out. I was like, all right, I'll deal with that. Then they waited, we got on the stand, they played it. So I'm supposed to stand here and look, hell no, I'm not gonna stand here and look, I'm turning, then I'm gonna cover my head. And so I tweeted them back and say, you know what? Y'all don't know. So those of you, I know a lot of us feel that way, but let's get a little ammunition. This is Jefferson Morley's book, Snowstorm in August. This is Snowstorm in August by Jefferson Morley. I mentioned it before. Last week, last year we talked about July 4th. However, I couldn't put my hands on the book. It took a year. <laughs> you know, oh, wait, oh, I got it. Let me. This is the story. Let me just read to you very quickly. In 1835, the city of Washington pulsed with change. As newly freed African Americans from the South poured in, free blacks outnumbered slaves for the first time. Radical notions of abolishing slavery circulated on city street and white residents were forced to confront new ideas of what the nation's future might look like. On the night of August 4th, author Arthur Bowen, a 19 year old slave, stumbled into the bedroom where his owner, Anna Thornton, slept. He had an ax in the crook of his arm. An alarm was raised and he ran away. Word of the incident spread rapidly and within days, Washington's first race riot exploded as whites, fearing a slave rebellion, attacked the property of the free Blacks. The free Blacks. So they use this as an excuse to go after the free Blacks. Sound familiar in Tulsa? Sound familiar in Grand? And we go, we just looking for an excuse. Residents dubbed the event the snowstorm. White residents. Why? In reference to the central role of Beverly Snow, a flamboyant former slave turned successful restaurateur who became the target of the mob's rage. Beverly Snow had been freed out of Virginia, was a master chef who built restaurants first during enslavement and made profits for the guy who had him captive. Then 
the guy who had him captive freed him, his wife. They moved DC, opened up Washington's first restaurant. He's selling the oysters. He's got the fare from, from France. He's got everything. Beverly Snow is making money hand over fist. It's black dude. When this thing goes down, they attack Beverly Snow. Snow ain't got nothing to do. No, but watch this. This is where I end. In the wake of the riot came two sensational criminal trials that gripped the city. Prosecuting both cases was none other than Francis Scott Key, a politically ambitious attorney famous for writing the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner, who few now remember served as the city's district attorney for eight years. Andrew Jackson, that racist, when he was made president, when he won the election, guess who he sent to who was living in Georgetown? Francis Scott Key. Scott Key comes to the White House. Andrew Jackson says, look, I'm thinking about appointing this guy attorney general. What do you think? Key said, that's my man. I agree. Guess who they were talking about? Roger Taney. That's right. The same one who wrote Dred Scott later when he went to be the Supreme Justice Supreme Court. This was Francis Scott Key's boy. Now, y'all, before y'all jump on Gwen Berry, I'm talking now to the people in the social structure who think she did something wrong. That anthem, y'all go read all of that anthem, particularly the third verse that he wrote there at Fort McHenry when he went up to Fort McHenry and was guaranteed safe passage back. This is during the War of 1812, it's 1814. And then they hold him and he's looking out at Fort McHenry, seeing if the flag is gonna still be out there. And when and then the morning comes and the flag's there, he's all happy as my man, Gerald Horn said, yeah. And a lot of black people weren't happy because they were on the side of the British because even after the American Revolution, there's still slavery here. He said, while he was in that ship writing them lyrics, there were probably some black people diving into the bay trying to get to the ship to the British to be free. They were the exact opposite. But that third verse of the Star Spangled Banner that talks about the hireling and slave, Francis Scott Key is a pro-slavery. In fact, he was a member of the American Colonization Society. He's a, what sent all these black people out? At the same time, this is for the liberals, the white liberals. You know, and I love because Dick Gregory also talks about the black liberals in the documentary. You're gonna see we got we, maybe we should debrief after you see we should talk about this. But anyway, the white list for white liberals, the allies. Francis Scott Key also defended indigent free blacks in Washington because he felt like they should have uh, a defense. I should defend these black people, but that don't mean I think black people are equal. He had a little Thomas Jefferson in him that way. In other words, you know, they're these poor creatures like the ASPCA. So y'all know how that is. You, you know, nobody should suffer. Yeah, but I ain't, that don't mean that I think you, you're as good as I am. Francis Scott Key was one of them kind of racists. And so Key defended slavery until the twilight's last gleaming. That's what he says. And he pandered to racial fears by seeking capital punishment for Arthur Bowen. But in a surprise twist, his prosecution was thwarted by Arthur's ostensible victim, Anna Thornton, the white woman whose room he went into, a respected socialite whose deceased husband had designed the U.S. Capitol and may well have been, here's the final shocking law and order twist that ain't shocking the black people, Arthur's father. Okay, go get snowstorm in August. So I'm saying when Gwen, when, when, when Gwen uh, made that, Gwen Berry made that, uh, made that pronouncement, we all rushed in the governance structure to surround her and we made public pronouncements. I cannot wait to overhear your conversation when you put a, tell that sister, we all with her. And there is plenty of ammunition because anybody black standing up with tears in your eyes singing the Star Spangled Banner, you clearly don't know all three verses and you don't know who Gary Scott Key is or, or you don't care. And that's, that's I respect that. 
just say you don't care. But don't try to wrap this into we're better than this. This is American patriotism. Now, at this point now, as my mama said, you put you open your mouth, put your brain on display. This ain't got nothing to do with anything this country has ever been or has been to date. And if you want to say it's going to be better in the future, we all hope that. But as Dick Gregory said, I ain't leaving until I personally straighten it out. And once it's straightened out, I'm out. This one, be like Steve one. So I mean, independent, and then maybe you should say just a word about Independence Day as a way to build the bridge. This was the attitude of Black people toward Independence Day. In fact, there's a number of books on Independence Day. Y'all go back and look at our conversation because we talked about Douglas, we talked about all the things. There's an interesting little book by Lynn Travers called Celebrating the Four. This is uh, published 1997, uh, University of Massachusetts Press, Lynn, Lynn, uh, Lynn Travers. Interesting, the time he was at the Center for the Study of New England History at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Travers goes back to the beginning of Independence Day. And we won't go into this today, you know, I have it now. The first festivals you see around July 4th, around 1877, and then it really plateaus in terms of a watershed moment in 1826, which is the 50 year anniversary, which is what they call the Jubilee. He writes extensively about, he's doing case studies of the oldest cities in the colonies that become the states. So he looks closely at Philadelphia. He looks closely at Boston. If you remember our conversation, we, you know, I talked about Philadelphia, having lived there, going down there and reading Frederick Douglass's thing while I'm watching this parade show, going down to Independence Hall the day before, because down the street from Independence Hall, there is a cemetery where they have a tomb of the unknown soldier, the first one in the country, but that was also a Congo square where the Africans were uh, there and they buried a lot of black people there. And so the Africans in Philadelphia would gather there on the 3rd of July and mark this moment of somber reflection, not in service of an American patriotism, but to say, never forget that that wasn't about us and that we fought not for George Washington or for the British, but for ourselves with whoever will, you know. And so the high point of those rituals, and I think I mentioned this when we talked before, my friend Michael Corden and the Avenging the Ancestors Coalition, we struggled for years so that uh, Erica Dunbar Nelson has written about Ona Judge and you, know, you talked to her and uh, Hercules, the chef there and, and George Washington, they had them oppressed there at the president's house. But before, long before any of this stuff got popular, black people in Philadelphia waged a struggle for years to say, you're not going to build commemorative sites in this Independence Hall site and overlook our ancestors. And in fact, you, we don't even trust you to narrate them if you include them. We're going to tell this story. And so when you go to Independence Hall, you go to Liberty Bell, our story is told there, not as, oh, we were patriotic. No, Hercules and on a judge, I'm out. And here they are right here. So before you go in and look at that bell, you're going to confront us because we were the ones. So anyway, I said, I'd say in celebrating the fourth, what he, what he documents is in those early 4th of July celebrations in Boston, for example, they had something called Negro Voter Day. This was the day black people went to vote. White people call that, that's the uh, N-word day. That's the same phrase that they used in the South for Juneteenth, parenthetically. This is the end day. You know, and some of y'all, some of y'all listening to this know that because that is an echo. I, I have friends, can can uh Kenyatta Dina and Georgia who say growing up, they still called it that in Georgia. In other words, so they still got some memory of that. But anyway, the point is that then there was July 4th. You see, what he documents is. Black people would march in the parades and segregated, but they weren't marching under the Star Spangled Banner because they believed in the mayor. They said, no, we fought too. And we fought for our freedom. And so we hear, 
But what he traces is it was all segregated. And in Philadelphia, he goes to Philly and he shows as the thing got more and more uh, prominent, July 4th celebrations, and the black population got larger, white resentment exploded as well. They were like, what are y'all doing? What, why are y'all coming over here? In fact, black people then said, this, this is, I'll just read you this very quickly. He said, on New Year's Day, 1808, so now they've been celebrating July 4th since, eight, since 1777. So 77, 87, 97, 07. So 31 years they've been doing July 4th. But January the 1st, 1808, that was the date. Remember in the original federal constitution, they said the slave trade, traffic in the slave trade. You can't bring no more boats, it's illegal. What did black people in Philadelphia do? They came together and said, January 1st now is our day. <laughs> so they took January 1st, 1808, and they marked the day with divine worship, oration and declared January 1st to be a perpetual day of public thanksgiving for the black community. Then in Boston, that following July, not the 4th, 10 days later, the 14th, black Boston got together and did the same thing, but they did it on the 14th because that was the date in the, in the original constitution that Congress ratified that. They said July 14th was the day that, so black people are putting their independence celebrations, pegging it to their independence. What happens? This is where I'll end. You know what the white press wrote? They said, this is the Independent Chronicle in Boston. The Independent Chronicle admired the spirit and good order of the meeting, the celebration of July 4th, 16th, but suggested that such celebrations were in poor taste and that annual repetitions were unnecessary. And therein, tying it to Gwen Berry, lies the lesson. Those six categories we created in the Africana States framework are unique for two reasons. I'll give the second one first. The second one is they apply to all human beings. The first one is they apply to us. In other words, all human beings, meaning we are going to talk about our ways of knowing, our movement and memory, our science, technology, how we adapt and use it, our cultural meaning making. And guess what? For you to understand, let's apply it to yours as well. These black people said, July 14th is our day. We're going to do it from now. Then you come over from the social structure and say, okay, y'all were cool. It was nice. Let's not do that again. But then every July 4th, you want us to come out, wave the flags. But, but then we say, well, we're going to do Juneteenth or we're going to do Kwanzaa. But, no, hold on now. No, no, see, y'all not going to bleed over from the social structure and tell us about what days we're going to celebrate. I'm going to celebrate my mama's birthday. I'm going to celebrate Karen Hunter's birthday. I'm going to celebrate Martin Delaney's birthday. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. And if you say I can't, then I'm going to go to you and say, well, don't ever come to me again and start talking about American values because what you're showing me is American values. And I ain't leaving until I personally straighten it out. And once it's straightened out, I'm out this morning. Because guess what? This is just a place on the ball. This place ain't no better, no worse than anywhere else. And the most important places in this country, as far as I'm concerned, is where my mama is, where your daddy is buried, where my daddy is buried. These are our sacred sites. And if you want me to show up and salute that, that piece of cloth, you better give me a reason. Because I didn't come out of my mama's womb with a flag in my hand. So, <laughs> so, so Gwen Berry, I can't wait to hear that conversation. And happy uh, July yeah, 4th, yeah. everyone. Enjoy your barbecue and spades game. <laughs> And that's right. And it's complicated, right? You know, as it's we start the conversation, you know, we have we have the duplicity and the and the hypocrisy, but also it's two things can be true. You know, we're gonna enjoy our cookouts and and enjoy one another. Yes. 
but for us, it does mean something different. Like I, I can't ever remember thinking the 4th of July was about patriotism and American values. It was about cookouts and fireworks. That's exactly right. So it's going to still be about that. And it's still going to be right. And, and when you all hear us say, you know, America, these values, please understand, just like this Bill Cosby conversation that's been taking place these, these, over the arc of these last few days, please understand that a great deal of that is Black folk understanding after centuries of this, that there's a way we have to talk to people to get you out of our business. Now, the, so in other words, you know, all due respect to Laura Codes, to Mark, all, everybody talking in public face the media, everybody on MSNBC, but we all know that once those lights go down and once they say we're clear and once you get in your car and get to the house and on the weekend, you sitting, as you say, at that table today, playing spades and bit with, drinking whatever you sipping on, talking to your grandmama there and somebody say, dude, you look at them and say, I know, man, but then you mess my money up. And then we just keep on playing. We done had a whole nother conversation. Understand? And if you want to talk about what Bill Cosby is guilty or not, in that very same conversation, the question would be, look, man, I see what the court said. Yeah, I'm good with that. But uh, yeah, would you let that old man? Hell no, I'll kill that. In other words, see, this, is a, this is a governance structure conversation. We have to be courageous, intelligent enough, and committed enough to our collective liberation to figure out a way to be honest with each other. Because whatever Felicia Rashad is or isn't, has or hasn't been, the idea that she could go in one sentence tweet from a cultural meaning maker, a person who has preserved our movement and memory on stage in Gem of the Ocean as Felicia Rashad as Claire Huxtable. So the joke is, you know, Howard is Hillman and here's Dean Huxtable. You could go in one tweet from that to, I don't trust my children around you. That's just immaturity. I mean, that, that's just immaturity. In other words, unless you can walk through that, let's be very clear because if that is going to be the standard, then that should be the standard. And that means we got a whole lot of work to do. Well, I think we have a whole lot of work to do. We have a whole lot of work to do. Fortunately, we, fortunately we got time and opportunity, air and opportunity, and you and I are uniquely made to do the work and so are the people who have joined us today. So I just want to say thank you uh, for giving me a lot to think about. Now I'm going back into the lab because uh, there's some things I have to tweak, you know, and this is the process, right? You know, as, we, as we're confronted with things that, make us uncomfortable that we haven't considered before we got to sit with it for a minute you know uh -huh. let's, not, let's let's be mature enough to work through you know i was i was thinking to myself the other day i i caped for mike tyson in my 20s i was at the daily news i remember with that desert you know and i was like where you know why did she two o'clock in the morning everybody knows that's a booty call everybody knows that's you know right. why would she go you know and you raise a certain way and you know you know better at the exact same time I'm now at a different place where, you know, I've been in clubs, you know, because I used to cover sports where there were women that were completely naked, just about, with just like some G strings, some, you know, in a club. And I'm like, what do you expect to happen to yourself the way you, you know, that's my 20 something year old knee jerk, you know, kind of immature. I'm in that moment. But now there's so much more complexity to, what it means to have agency over your body. Yeah, you could bust it open and do whatever you want and still not deserve to be raped. Right. And that has to be, you know, right. for us, this, 
I don't, you could be butt ass naked, oil down. That's the principle. Expecting sex. Right. And still not deserve it. No question. Expecting I mean. sex and having sex up into the middle. Okay, that's it. Okay, that's it then. Right. I mean, this is right. You're at, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think I mentioned this before when we, when we went to the Juneteenth sign at the White House. Uh, Audrey took me down there and I was down there. You know, I'm standing there talking to Andre Carson, who I haven't seen in many years, Congressman Carson. Who's it? I think he's the second Muslim in, in Congress. Yes, exactly. After you know, Watch this. And I, yeah, I, I, I ain't telling tales out of school. The first time I met Andre Carson, we were kids. This was 1993, Indiana Black Expo. His grandmother was still alive. She's still in, she was in Congress, Julia Carson. And uh, we were all together in the Black Expo because we, I was, that was, was the first and only time I met and, and talked with and sat with Tupac. We had this panel in the Black Expo. And I was standing there with now Congressman Andre Carson. It's almost 30 years later. And we standing in there with an earshot of the President and Vice President of the United States reminiscing about how people in Indiana was losing their minds because Tupac, the day before that panel, had gone to see Mike Tyson because Mike Tyson was locked up in Marion. I remember that. And man. so remember what I'm saying? And, and Andre, me and Andre standing there, I'm sorry, me and me and Congressman Carson are standing there talking about how, I mean, to the point you're raising, Professor Hunter, the complexity of Black life. How this guy, Tupac, is beloved in the Black community when if you comb through his TikTok day by day on this very issue that you're raising, we got some problems. And so Mike Tyson, he's viewing Tyson as a political prisoner and he's not alone in that in that moment. At the same time, Mike, keep your hands off Desiree Washington. At the same time that Gregory, whatever his name was, uh, Garrison, I think was his name, the prosecutor in Indiana, gonna stand up in his clan adjacent language and condemn not only Mike Tyson, but as avatar, all black men who you trying to paint as sexual predators. So uh, what you just said is so true. It's too complex. It's too complex for us to co-mingle the social structure and the governance structure. We got to turn down the volume so that this house, we got to clean up our house. We can clean it up without somebody keep coming in and say, see, you ain't using the right thing. This is the bleach you need. Hold on, chief. Because you ain't never brought no cleaning products into our house that did anything but harm us. So you stay outside with the cleaning products. We're going to make our own cleaning products. And once we get our house out, we'll be outside. We'll be out to talk with you. But you ain't got no comment on this. And when we clean our house and yours, we get and yours. out this mother. We out this mother. <laughs> I'm with Baba Dick Gregory, no question. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. All right. And we're going to be traveling so we can figure out where to land. So How about that? And then guess what? We can leave and still have a house here. So don't think, uh, Francis Scott Key, just because we left, we won't come back to our house. Right. Our no house. question. <laughs> we built this mother. All right. No question. Listen. Have a happy, happy fourth, brother. I love you. I happy thank fourth, you. Love you too. Everybody, thumbs up, like, subscribe, share, and join right. the narrative. Go over the narrative with a K, like knowledge.com, and get your folk in there because we got work to do. Okay, oh, can, can I say one final word on narratives? Absolutely. Thank you all, everyone who has subscribed. Thank you, everyone who's telling people to subscribe. Thank you. I mean, every time I'm peeking in on social media and I'm seeing people are saying they canceling TV subscriptions so they That's could right. move the money over and over. Hey, y'all come on, because this is all, this is what we're doing. In fact, maybe we should do this, Professor Harrison. Um, like I said, that Cosby opinion is worth reading. Read that 79 page opinion. Also read the concurrence and read the dissent. 
By the way, uh, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, those are 10-year terms to which you are elected. You can run on party lines. The one dissenter who said in the dissent, no, I think you should have a new trial, but you should exclude all that previous testimony from those other accusers. So even his dissent was like, exclude that other stuff. That one dissenter was one of the only, of only two Republicans on the uh, seven, you know, elections matter. And I'm not saying that because this ain't about Bill Cosby. This is about the process through which the law intervenes in our lives. So y'all sign up the narrative, please, because that's the space when we really, the, the, what we do on, what we do on Saturdays, it's a service, we gotta do that. But once we get in the narrative side, we start building that world. So thank you again listen, for building it. Professor. Listen, we're in the midst right now building a social media platform. Uh, yeah, because we need to have places, safe places where we can have conversations. And yeah, I see how she dropped that little bomb and then moved on. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just, we just need to have it, right? So like build the world you want to live in. I'm going to live by that. And I appreciate everybody that is allowing us to do that because your support matters. But it's not just your support. It's supporting yourself. That's right. Your future selves and supporting a hundred years from now, black people who are still going to be here because we are still going to be here a hundred years from now. No question. You're going to still be here. All right. I love you. See you next week. See you.